On episode 26 of How to Play Area, the Game Developers Podcast, we sit down with Marie Mejawal, an independent game designer and developer, as well as esports veteran who has had an extremely interesting path into development, starting out in game journalism, then moving into and wearing all the various hats in early esports and coming into development as a programmer, then transitioning into game design and even climbing up that ladder all the way into game design direction. I got a chance to meet Marie through our mutual friend Stefan Carmignani, whom you might know from episode 16 last season. She's done work on Rollercoaster Tycoon World, Deuce X Mankind Divided at Eidos Montreal, AI design for Batman Arkham Origins at WB Games Montreal, worked at Capcom Vancouver on Dead Rising, and last we spoke, she was working as a game director for Meta Games. We last spoke last summer, so a lot of time has passed. Nowadays, she's a consultant who offers her services for studios, publishers, investors, and schools. We touch on a wide spectrum in this one, going from game development, her time in game journalism, and her major love in esports, where she's done it all from commentating, analyzing, coaching, organizing, producing for ESL and Meltdown Esports bars, to where she now co-drives Femina Gaming. Without further ado, representing her homeland of Sweden, please welcome Marie Mejewal. Let's start the show. Bienvenido, bienvenue. Welcome to the Out of Play Area podcast, a show by video game devs for game devs, where the guests open up one-on-one about their journey, their experiences, their views, and their ideas. No ads, no bullshit. Join us as we venture far out of the play area with your host, seasoned game designer, John Diaz. I am recovering from Pride in Berlin, where Pride is quite a thing. And, you know, yesterday was a long, eventful, a joyous day. <laughs> Celebrate Pride. And then there was another festival the next day, like a food festival that I had to get up to. So I'm still recovering a little bit. But uh, yeah, I'm in Berlin, mm. Berlin, the Germany, not, not the biggest game dev capital of the world, but you know, it's up and coming. That it is. Ubisoft, as you imagine, has a presence everywhere. Wargaming, Riot, mm. and a couple of small places too. Where are you at? I work for Meta Games, which is a startup. It's my first ever startup gig, which, you know, it's pretty exciting because you can take a bigger part and get a bigger responsibility. Right now, I, I work as game director for a new game, a new game product. And I, I've, I have been the one woman army up until uh, about three weeks ago when I, got, when I got my first hire. So, you know, I do everything between like signing deals with recruitment firms and like, like getting a new office space. I'm going to paint our new office space. I make a roadmap. I design. <laughs> It's a pretty big one too, right? So everything around prod and the budgets, uh, budget and economy, grants, applications and all, all that jazz as well. So I'm quite, and also just helping to build the culture in general. It's building our esports culture because it's an esports startup. That's intense. I've worked with a few game directors who have like a quarter of that responsibility. (laughs) Right. In your case, it's a game director plus being at a startup, right? Where you get to wear all those other necessary hats to just build the team, right? Make it a place that people can work at, want to work at. That's amazing. It's challenging. Yeah. Did you foresee (laughs) some of those responsibilities coming your way? No, I thought I would more or less be the creative director. 
and then they were like, and it's a startup, and they haven't really worked in the, in the gaming. Not not a lot of them have worked in the gaming industry before. And they're like, no, we don't think creative director fits. We think game director. I'm like, oh well, you know, because in AAA, you're sometimes the game directors below the creative director, or sometimes they're on the same level. You never really know, right? True. So I'm like, damn, I wanted to see the role that would have set up my career, you know, like because it, it translates really well. Absolutely. And I became a game director. And I'm like, wait, I am the game director and the creative director and the EP, <laughs> basically. You're absolutely right. Usually at the top two positions on a project, you know, EP and creative director and some other places, tech director or whatever. And that kind of forms the three-headed hydra of a project. <laughs> Dang. Someone is like managers over here. <laughs> Better watch out. I guess there's a nicer way I can put that. Uh, <laughs> you chop one head off, they promote another one every time. <laughs> they're always going to be there. You guys can't see it, but he's nodding right now. <laughs> they're always going to be there. You always have to go through them. They are the gatekeepers to all the they things are in the project. The gatekeepers to your career. So make sure you stay on their good side. Communicate. While Just... keeping your integrity, of course. Yes, that's a big one. Yeah, we got deep real quick there. Super fast. That's why I like hanging out with you guys over there on the east of the Atlantic. Yeah, straight to the point. Straight to the point. That's it. We'll need no warm up. Game director in title, but really so much more. Just everything and everything to get this project off the ground, to build a culture, to build a team, fill in a rough outline or vision for what the design is going to be. Then there's esports in there too. That's kind of rare yeah it's a couple of partnerships and stuff that i do as well but i can't i can't, I can't talk too much but there's there's definitely like the games that we that we have we're making mobile esports games and the thought is that they will fit into like the e- esport ecosystem and have different connections to other things within that ecosystem right so there's there's a whole lot of talking getting to know people and networking and, and partners and stuff going on too that's cool because usually those are tangentially related worlds. Games, mm. esports are built off of games. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's kind of games. I don't know where you want to get to, John. Yeah, I don't know where I'm going with this. <laughs> esports are built off of games, but it's seldom the fact that one entity is in both worlds at the same time. Does that make mm. sense? That I'm trying to get to. It's more, more. I mean, it's the developers really that's doing that, and the publisher to a point as well. Who is doing both the game development side and the esports kind of side. And then within esports, there's so many other things that kind of sprang in and became a part of that whole ecosystem that are not necessarily game development. So that's cool. It can be anything from like, hey, here's a program that Skybox GG is in the program that kind of helps you to just do some replays and analysis of the games that someone else made. There's a lot of like streaming has also become uh, risen a lot thanks to esports like StarCraft 2 yeah. was the biggest game early on Twitch when it went from Justin TV to Twitch there is a lot of deals with hardware makers and gaming brands and, and gaming sodas and it just feel like everyone want a little piece of esports right now because it's a mm-hmm. booming industry and the growth rate even if it's just still just like a 1 billion industry the growth rate is, is amazing for esports it's, it's still growing really quickly we might Absolutely. not have seen it during COVID because we don't get our yearly update of how big the arena was for the next League of Legends or international. Like <laughs> that's yeah. gonna be the measurement. How big is Facebook? Well, how much should you fill out the arena this year? Okay, cool. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. That's the benchmark, right? To be like, well, how much has it grown? It's like, well, what arena is it filling? Soccer stadiums, right? Are yeah. you filling like, Vegas arenas? And, and you know, and one of the coolest thing with, with the growth of esports is that 
you can see real sports team are getting esports teams as well. Like I heard like just the other day, there was Wolverhampton FC. It's a it's a Premier League like football or soccer team in the in the UK. And they had they bought a they bought up an esports organization a couple years ago called Wolves, and they're just starting to make more and more more and more teams and more and more sports. And now they're getting into actually like racing and whatnot. Wow, it's cool, you know. Like they want to get in behind the scenes. Yeah, there's a lot of lot of cool stuff and a lot of like it's it's getting into sports in the way that is more welcoming than mm-hmm. to be the bastard cousin, if that makes sense. <laughs> Which it has been, <laughs> to be honest. Yeah, I guess esports has been big. It continues to grow, like you said, exponentially. But yeah. there is a level of authority when physical sports now wants a piece of esports and vice versa, right? Mm. So they're going to kind of cross-pollinate and help each other out. In the beginning, it was a threat, you know? In the beginning, esports was a threat to their viewership, to their sponsors, to their grants that they're getting, you know? But more and more now, whether it's being embraced. Not mm-hmm. everywhere, but we're slowly getting there. Just something that happened just this week, actually, was that we have now when there's the pandemic going on and there's sports like Olympics, you know, like a lot of countries have travel restrictions, you know? But elite athletes are exempt. So, you know, if you want to go to a competition in Sweden or in Japan, you know, like if you're a pro athlete, mm-hmm. they'll be like, okay, you can still get a visa. We'll still get let you in. For esport athletes, not so much. Depends on the country. Some countries are starting to be, oh, you're a pro e-athlete, esport athlete. Yes. Okay, you're welcome. But a lot of countries still don't. We, we had an issue with in Stockholm. I'm from Stockholm. That's why I speak almost in the first term. But the Dota, the international, was being supposed to be held in Stockholm. But Stockholm would not let the athletes outside of the European Union come in and to the country. So they, they moved it. And now there's been tries to get the, the CSGO major that was also planned for this fall for Stockholm. Mm. Well, they're trying to keep in. And now finally the government is, is racing to kind of change their, their laws a little bit. And hopefully welcome also esports athletes to get the same status as, you know, this group. That's cool. You know, change rarely ever happens out of just because it comes out of necessity and it's forced, right? Something like a pandemic is going to force people to rethink a lot of policy and force change quickly, right? Like I never thought vaccines would get approved and executed this quickly. Yeah, record speed, right? And so same thing with some of these laws, right? You can imagine they're super old laws that needed updating, especially to make room for something new and fresh like an e-athlete. And there's no reason Mm. on paper that they are one and the same. It's kind of cool, you know, like one day when we will be stepping out of the pandemic. I feel like we're, we're on the sideline stepping in, out, in and out of the like yes. lockdowns and stuff, right? But one uh. day, like when we step out, we will realize that we're not stepping out in the exact thing that we left when we went into the pandemic. And I'm kind of curious and excited to see what, what all the changes will be in the end. Yeah, work from home being a big part of it. That's it, right? Maybe there'll be even laws to say like you have to allow a part of it unless you can, you know, state otherwise that your employees really need to be there, right? Yeah, you got to have that on paper. You got to have it in writing in your contract, right? Like I think that's definitely going to be a negotiation point for a lot of talent going forward. Yeah, I'm already negotiating people about <laughs> that. <laughs> that. That's what we noticed, though, like in the industry that people who are very experienced, you know, and who can choose which job they want to take, they'll be like, well, who's going to let me work from home, right? Yeah, on paper, it's like, yeah, pay is good, projects cool, people are awesome. Now, the differentiator will be like, what's the flexibility on the hybrid work model? Sorry, you there. It's the future. We're here, 2021. <laughs> 
How would you describe what you're doing today to someone on the outside of the industry? I think the word director actually translates pretty well in that regard, because it's like, oh, so you are like the boss over a department or something like this. And that's kind of what I am, you know? I lead a game team in many ways and, and aspects, you know, whether it's economically or culturally or creatively or, you know, planning and processes. Pretty much what I do. Yeah, I'm the director and I lead the game team, make mobile games. Do you have an ally in this? Is it solely in your responsibility? Do you have someone that you're bouncing ideas mm. off of? It's up to me who, which allies that I find. There's nothing that's defined for me. I, Of course, I need to manage expectations with my CEO and my CEO. But apart from that, it's, it's up to me to seek counsel on feedback on the things that I want. And I've especially been relying on the design team on the other game that we do have. There's a game called Rivals that's a, that you're the coach of a MOBA team, but it's a MOBA game. And I rely a lot on the designers in that team to give me more input about mobile because believe it or not, this is, this is pretty much my first mobile game. Yes, we're going to get know? into it. We're going to get ah, into it. Shit, we're going to get into teaser. your whole background. <laughs> I love seeing developers stretch out and branch out, right? Like. Mm across all the different mediums you know and always have an appetite for more, right? Like, I, want, mm -hmm. I haven't been in mobile. I want to embrace mobile. I want to bring what I know from console and AAA into that space, right? And That's it. Got to grow. That's a good segue then. Well, let's go <laughs> and step back. How yeah. did you get into games? What was your first love, your first game? Mm -hmm. Did you plan this? You know, like people be like, oh, so how do you get into games? And I don't remember a time when I was not into games, if that makes sense. You know, I got got my first Famicom on well, my first console. We had a Famicom, which is for those who are not familiar with it. It's the Nintendo 8-bit, but the initial version that was released in Japan. So I got a copy that I later learned was pirated. <laughs> oh, damn, piracy was even a problem back then. Oh, uh, yeah, it was a huge problem back then, even bigger than today. But we can, we can get into that a little bit later. Yeah, no, I got that. And from then on, it's just been the one way. It was only, the only question was, where, what do I do within games? And then how do I get to do the thing that I want to do? Which is not always the thing that you think you're good at, that I thrive, like the role that I have today. It, it plays on a lot of my talents and it fits me really well, but it's not something I could have gotten day one, you know? Mm -hmm. So you guys got to find the way to where you can thrive. So it's, it's been a long route. And I went through, first I, I read a PC gamer when I was seven. And I'm like, oh, I want to be a game journalist. And then I became kind of a reviewer. And then I'm like, wait a minute, this is not paying the bills. Like, mm. well, you just get a little bit of money for the one game you're, you're writing about. But it's really hard to stay in a career as a game journalist. And it just kept getting harder and harder to do support your creators and your game journalists out there if you have something you appreciate is that how it works it's like per article you get paid per yeah article. if you're freelancing you pretty much get per article but but and, and even so like within like a, a magazine usually there's like only very few people doing full-time sometimes mm -hmm. in a small magazine it could just be the editor-in-chief it's only full-time and there'll be a, like a half-time layout a graphical designer and then everyone else might be just freelancers that's a really common setup for like a small gaming publication, uh, both either online or physical. So 
But they were also be listed as part of the you know editorial, which they are, you know, the freelancers. But on the inside, it's really it was it was hard to make a living out of that, right? So I'm like, all right, what's next? And then for a while, I had the TV show that I was doing. So I was on Swedish national TV every week talking about games. Now the only problem is that was also a freelance gig. Oh. And you, I only actually got paid for the two hours that we were live recording. And I wasn't paid for all the prep work. I wasn't yeah. paid for the sitting there and the makeup or having discussions to like, okay, you do that. And, and the segue to me, like nothing out of that. So I was actually losing money <laughs> to be on TV every week because uh, wow. I had a job that I stopped. I had a, I had a part-time job, gig as a programmer that I, that I stopped doing to do that. And so that wasn't working either. And then I wanted to work with esports for a long time. I was, I've been involved with esports in 2001 when I started playing Counter-Strike as a player, clan leader, and then I became part of a gaming organization called Femina Gaming, and later renamed to Femina United. And we were doing all the Counter-Strike qualifiers and we had for, for like ESWC and bigger tournaments and we would go to into cafes. I would, we would, we would be a dream hack, the world's biggest LAN party twice a year. And back then you kind of did everything, you know, you'll be like, Hey, we need someone to design their t-shirts, someone to go to Ikea and buy stuff for the booth, someone to just talk to the crew over there to tell them, you know, what, what kind of benches or whatever furniture that we need. Someone to make a deal with this IT cafe that we can get all their computers and lend them for the event or with Nintendo to get like arcade consoles. And then with Plantronics to get like prices, prices and like what's this, what's, what we need to recruit people and what's everyone's schedule. Like back in the days, you did everything, everything, you know, all of it. All of it really. And head admin and writing the rules and, and whatnot. Like, I'm getting all kinds of stuff. And it was so much fun. But it was all, it was all volunteer. There was no money in esports, you know? Yeah, and today, all these roles, all these things are like different full time jobs. But, you know, back then, I was too early back then. It was ahead of the game. I was ahead of the game. I was ahead of my own games. Well, actually, let's give you your proper dues, Marie. You were early in laying the foundation that, that would build what it is today right that would create these individual roles so people like yourself can be like hey this is a full-time job in and of itself right like preparing the booth doing the partnerships the athletes themselves shouldn't be doing this stuff right like things like that thank you thanks for that yeah it was a lot of work but i it was almost like a, a half-time job for a month before each event and then maybe one week uh, after it's just to clean up the battlefield or what to say <laughs> and write reports to your sponsors so thank everyone and the only thing you got was like a headset <laughs> so yeah it's just all for the love right like you it's love these the games love. It's You're trying to make a love. name for yourself. And so culture. We were back then. We were this little bubble. You know, we were this little subculture that no one understood. Kind of like LARPers or role players were like back in the days. Like we were nerds. You know, we just they just saw it as like a kid's playground to go into one of these land parties. It's kind of dark and it's like jolt, like towers of jolt or like coke energy cans drink. everywhere. You know, people have like neon. Uh, whatever neon they can to put yep. on their computer deck it out people like sleep they brought a pillow they're sleeping on their keyboard which is a pillow in there you know they maybe brought a sleeping bag there's like one hot dog stand you know like that that's the can and that's where i started someone's pumping something you know like heavy heavy techno somewhere you can just kind of feel the bass and you can hardly breathe in there right that yeah. that's where we oh, came yeah. from the so that's, you know, like no one really took it seriously because there were just not a lot of adult, adults involved. 
just mm-hmm. not like one and one out of 10 maybe was past 20 who was dealing doing this stuff in the beginning so it was so new right it was so cutting yeah. edge the interest of it right like much like anything is if there's not a lot of money going into it then these big corporations aka the adults too mm. right they're like oh you know, just kids having yeah. fun, harmless, no big deal. I remember this one time. So I was, so DreamHack was the world's big slam party. And yeah, one year, I, I mean, we used to go there. And then suddenly one year, they're like, oh, you you know, you guys can get your your spaces in the new section. We're like, okay, cool. And there's some sort of exhibit section. We didn't really get it, you know, because there was ne- there had never been an exhibit section at a LAN park. We've, no one ever seen it, you know, but this mm-hmm. was the first. And we went there and we realized, oh, shit, we just kind of brought our computers and we were just planning to play and do everything online as we usually do. And then the tournament area is over there. And I'm like, oh, we have a booth and people are going to walk past it and we have to like, we should have something to entertain them so they can go in. It's weird to just pass a booth and there's no interaction with it you know yeah so we're like oh shit someone go to ikea and you like call your like parents you can come down with like black sheets that you can put everywhere we need like duct tape like shit and we're just yeah we just get real on something together <laughs> and like within just like the 12 hours we had before the visitors is gonna all come there right i wasn't wasn't too bad in it yeah that's awesome because nobody told you you had to do that there was no example put out there you know yeah, you were given the space to your surprise and you're like, hey, let's let's take advantage of this. Mm. Right? Like, let's make this a proper spectacle for the space that we have because people yeah. are going to be walking again, right? Like just of your own accord. At that land party specific, I remember there was another... What year was that? 2004, I think. Okay, so a few years afterwards. Well, as well back. But there was another... There wasn't just us. It was also this other online like esport magazine. Um, or it's, it's an esport portal that where they write esport news. They call Fragbyte, and this is Swedish site. And they were also there, just like us. They just kind of sat in their booth and just had their laptop. They hadn't planned to know that. And you know what? They just had their IPO two, three weeks ago. Was it called Frag News? Fragbyte. Fragbyte. So you know, like, look at where we were back then, sitting there with your laptops in this like deserted area of a, of a lamp party. And, and now look you know at where they they have a group behind them they even bought some game studios and stuff so the industry's gone quite a ways hey let that be a lesson or a message that syncs with anybody is that it has to start somewhere and it usually comes from the thing that you really enjoy or love and it may take 10 years 15 years but look at it now right like frag bites yeah. is ipo and i love that message i love just the fact of where it came from from very small humble beginnings yeah. And now it's making serious money. But that's why you have to love what you do too. Because, you know, you look at Amazon, you look at all these guys who went to space, you know, like whether it's Virgin, Mr. Mr. Branson, or if it's Jeff Bezos or like, or Elon. And you're like, well, their company started 20 years ago. Yes. More or less, you know, they were in it for the long haul and they've been grinding their way to it. So it's hard to find that easy win, jump on something when it starts looking fun. And then mm-hmm. make the big bucks. No, you gotta, it's gonna be so much blood, sweat, tears, and just time and effort, you know, breaking your back to get there in the first place. So, like, make sure you get into something that you love. Otherwise, you're never gonna make it. Yeah, because what, what are you gonna fuel yourself off of when it inevitably gets super hard, strenuous, demanding, right? It's gonna ask of you things yeah. that you can't give, are not ready to give. And it's free most of the time. And I want to say an important message to the students out there. You should think the same way when you're picking your thesis. 
do something that you're really interested in. Otherwise, it's going to be a really slow grind to finish it and to get your degree. Sounds like coming from experience. <laughs> I, I chose the wrong thing. It was hateful. <laughs> <laughs> what was it? I chose, like, this is, this is a while back, but a plugin platform development call. And it's about how you can have, like, an IT platform, a program, a game, or whatever. And then you can add small plugins to it. Like, I mean, so I was, I was writing my thesis for BWIN. It's an online poker creator. I mean, the ones who sponsored Real Madrid, or you can see their logo. And it was, they were like, how can we have mini games and add small modules and just add stuff to our client, you know, just like with just more like a plugin. And so I researched kind of ways to, to load that without having to recompile or find ways to integrate it in your, in your own software. Just kind of have that as standalone things that you can just kind of plug and plug and play in your review. I'm sure. It started off interesting and exciting and like related <laughs> to the things you were interested in. I kind of picked it because I kind of wanted a job afterwards. And I'm like, so what, what do you need the most kind of thing, right? So I didn't pick oh, something yeah. that I wanted. I picked something that they wanted. But Which but anyway, I can't knock. we combine this all together because I was talking a little bit about my my journey. So I so after, you know, the eSport e could not make a living out of it. A game reviewer could not make a living out of it. And then TV show definitely could not make a living out of that one. And then in 2008, I went to kind of a student fair. And I met a guy from DICE, the game studio DICE. Makers of Battlefield. Scott Coleman. And I asked him, you know, like game developers, like, what can you be, you know, become? And he said, well, you can be like an artist if you're good with drawing. I'm like, you can be a level designer if you're good with building worlds. I'm like, building world I, I didn't get it because it wasn't there was no accessible game engines at the time so i didn't even know what, what that entailed and then he said you can be a producer if you could organize him but then probably you're gonna have like a degree in some sort of business or product management I'm like, okay and then he said well there's design but no one really becomes a designer you know there's no schools for design this is back in 2008 at least no schools that anyone takes seriously they only mm -hmm. have the, the teachers who didn't make it to the game studios kind of thing at the time so most people they move in from either qa or art or programming and i'm like programming i can become a programmer i you know i'm pretty smart I love mathematics. I'm very analytical. I, I've, I've done my own homepages and small little things in, in school, you know, I'm like, I'll, I'll do that. And then I'll become a designer. That's my plan. And that's kind of what I did. And, and then on the way, I was, I don't know, sometimes, you know, like the smallest thing will really like plot the course for your life. Mm -hmm. So I started studying computer science and, and one day I got an email from my university saying, hey, we're doing this partnership with IBM or mentoring a class of like high school girls, you know, and I was a couple of years old at the time and I'm like, sure, I'll do it. And so, so I was doing that, teaching them some multimedia, teaching them some programs and stuff. And then afterwards, one of the IBM women emailed me and said, hey, we have this internal like intern position and it's about like gaming. It's about like virtual worlds, you know, like they're trying to figure out how you can have business meetings in these games or these worlds or something like that, how you can use them so you don't need to, for every conference, you know, move fly people everywhere kind of thing. but only if you could like imagine like a summer in california is in california so are you okay with that and i'm like dang <laughs> i'm okay with that so i i had my internship for ibm in silicon valley in los Jose, california which is pretty cool where did you have to fly from i'm from stockholm okay you were still home 
Yeah. And then you got this internship opportunity to come to the States. So I did. Sunny <laughs> West Coast, California, Silicon West Valley. Coast, Silicon Valley. It was just a big deal in 2005. And IBM was the biggest company in the world, IT company in the world at the time, right? Yeah, in absolutely. our in the lobby, we had like the world's first mobile hard drive that was like big ass. I don't know, well, almost big, almost the size of like of a small car. And then in the basement, we had the blue jean was like the year's quickest computer the year before because everything was moving so slowly. We have all these famous like inventors, like the guy who made a DB2 was walking the hallways and the guy who made a little bit, you know, you remember the old ThinkPad laptop that had a red little button. It's like the mouse pointer. Yeah, you had to yeah, push that, it. I met that guy. <laughs> all these people are just walking the hallways, right? Because it was a research lab. So only a, a few of IBM's facilities actually do research and this, that's what I was doing because they wanted to understand games so we we were admins in Second Life which was a big thing for a little while there during, you know there early 2000s because it was a virtual world where you could it wasn't just a game it was mm -hmm. just like you could have a concert in there so we didn't have like a press conference in there right so we were admin I was a GM in Second Life and I could fly around and we had like our own IBM island whatnot so it's pretty cool i mean it's pretty cool at the time i was just like 20 something like that and i was i was an intern so i was a it's a big deal and it was a really nice thing to have on my resume and i'm sure you're learning tons of things just like how yeah. things are connected making great relationships i learned things about ux and ui that i still apply today you Back know those guys yeah, I mean, those guys, they, you know, they invented all these things and they were successful for a reason. So, no, that was really cool. And it set me up in so many ways. It looked good on my resume, obviously. And I got some mentors and I got, I picked up a couple of skills. So that was really helpful. It was like uh, an extra bonus, I guess, to my resume, but it wasn't, it wasn't everything. And I still had to start from scratch. So, you know, I get back to Sweden. I'm like, what do I do now? You know, my internship ended. I need to finish my degree. I need to do my thesis. And that's why I got into BWIN. I'm like, okay. Because uh, the game industry was really poor at the time too. Like uh, in Sweden, like Green went bankrupt and Avalanche, you know, had to let go half their staff and DICE had a hiring freeze. So they're like, there's no way we can, ha yeah, there's no way we can hire you. And I kind of wanted to, you know, have my thesis in a company that could hire me. So that was smart. No, that was like the global kind of recession, right? Like the housing bubble yeah. blew up in 2008. I was with Midway at the time. Oh, Midway yeah. Midway went out of business, oh, right? Like, oh, good on Midway. <laughs> so much to thank them for. Rest in peace. They live on like in nether realms and some of these other places. Their spirit lives on. I hope those people are still making games. Oh, absolutely. Okay. A bunch of people in Austin are still doing things. Chicago is nether realm. Everybody's still doing their thing. That's cool. Sometimes I play these old games where I look them up on mobile and I see all these names. I'm like, what are those people doing today? Did they, you know, was it, was game industry, was it as, as big of a kind of bubble as it is today? You go in and there's no return. There's, there's nowhere else you kind of go. Like, or was it just like, they just, oh, I'm doing this and then I'm doing this other software, you know, like, I, well, how was it like at a time? Was it, was it for career choice? Was it something that like, because I know some companies were just software companies and then they mm -hmm. got a game project, right? And they kind of released it. I'm sure you ran into so many people during your internships and didn't even know who they were, right? Because yeah. a lot of the early Atari devs were all ex-Xerox or Apple or mm -hmm. people in that space that moved yeah. over and took all their technical skills into video games, right? Where they can be more yeah. lax and less like business focused, right? Like, hey, I can wear shorts, I can wear casual clothes. 
And this is where it stemmed. But you're absolutely right. Like, it wasn't a career, but most people that come in ended up staying, right? Hooking in somehow and like making new companies, new software, mm-hmm. whatever. I can't imagine yeah. doing anything else, right? Like, thank goodness. Yeah. I know today, if you're into the industry, you're kind of in, in the industry to stay. But back then, I don't know how, and some people made it, but there's a lot of people in who are unaccounted for in those credits, right? So sometimes <laughs> I wonder. You know, like, we do need what, to what conduct some to investigations. What you do? Because we couldn't see, people were, the people didn't have Twitters back then, right? That's <laughs> true. That's true. Just It's just a name. It's a mysterious name. You find them on mobile games and then you try to connect the dots. Shout out to Moby Games, man. I don't know who sees and manages that database, but thank goodness for them. I know. I just like, I think two weeks ago, I wanted to add my my portfolio as a link to my bio. Took them two weeks to approve it, but they came through, right? Counts for something. And no, it's amazing. I. So when I when I'm gonna hire someone, I don't I don't always check their LinkedIn. I check their mobile games. Anybody can claim something on LinkedIn, but mobile games is like fact checked by stuff. some like stealth group of people carrying the industry yeah. on their shoulders, or at least preserving. On that topic, also a shout out, and also all the students in there, or those who haven't learned this yet, but GameDevMap.com is a great site where you can find like which game studios are available in the area that I, you know, that I want to live in or that I do live in. I love Game Dev Map. Thank you so much for calling that one out. This is a great place to look for when you think, oh, what's near me? I don't know where games are made. Go on this website and be surprised at all the different countries making games and doing something. And this is not like 100% up to date. There's a lot of companies that aren't on there. But it's a great starting point. It has a lot of stuff. Some things are a little bit outdated, but you know, like it's not like someone's like Google calling them to let them know to take take you off the map, right? So but it has a lot of I honestly like a couple of years back, I don't even know. Like I think I've done this several times and be like, which which city do I want to live in? Let me just like uh, look at game the map, list all the ones that are pretty big that will, you know, might give me a visa or might help me with relocation. And what, what project are they working on? Okay, and then rank them. And then you start with the top and then you apply to the second one. And also for you students out there, it's going to be really, really slow if you apply to one of them and wait for a like full yay or nay and then start the other. Always have like at least three that you're talking to at the same time. Just pro tip. It'll help you anyway because they're going to be like, oh, there's competition. Oh, uh-huh. we better race our, oh, oh, we better race our bets here, you know, like, yeah, it'll be good for you. Don't be scared of letting them know that you're popular. It can only work in your favor. Yeah, be transparent, be honest, and put your work in, right? Like, mm-hmm. no one's going to hire you just based on who you are, what you've done, right? You have to put the legwork to chase these companies down, let them know who you are, send them your work. And it's this thing about, like, letting life happen to you or letting you happen to life, right? Are you going to sit there and be reactive and then work at the companies who happen to reach out to you, which is probably companies that you are a little bit overqualified for at some points? Or are you going to get yourself out there and look for a position in company, in city, in game that you're really, really passionate about, right? Always have your, like, three or five-year plan or something like that. 
that's a good call out. You know, we as designers and creatives don't put our energy and talents to designing our life nope. as much as we should. Mm -hmm. We're so gung-ho and focused on like, oh, yeah, this new experience or technology or battle royale, whatever. And if we applied those skills to designing our life to be like, oh, yeah, in five, mm -hmm. ten years, this is where I want to live. This is what I want to see. These yeah. are the type of things I want to do. And you could achieve it, right? You just I'm a big believer in kind of vision boards. Yeah. And having some type of goal to move to. Yeah, put it up. You know, I have a world map in my apartment with dots where I've been and diamond like uh, gem stickers where I want to go. And I'll ah. see it every day. It reminds me of goals, goals, get on track. That's it. I also have my calendar like on my bedroom door. So when I wake up, I'll, I'll see it. I remember what I, <laughs> what's, uh, you know, what's happening this week kind of thing also works. But I wanted to add one more thing on this topic before moving on, and it's that when you look at places to live and, and work, especially when you're just starting out, pick somewhere where there's more than just the one studio. Because Ooh. if it's just the one studio, then you're very much kind of out there and vulnerable to whatever happens with the game or other games in that genre that comes up before the game that they're making, or like CEO leaves and there's new new guy or girl or, or uh, yeah comes in like you, you never you never know you don't have control so make sure you live in a city where at least you have a, a backup option that's just the industry we live in i'm sorry to break it to you but but actually i'm happy to break it to you as well because you gotta learn this shit right it's like you can make one bad game sometimes and survive especially if you belong to a big publisher but some studios even after one if, they, if they're independent and they make one good game the next game is a flop Mm -hmm. they might not make it you know great word of advice right like the industry is great about moving people around getting you visas right if you show that mm -hmm. you're worth it so that you can experience a new culture you grow so much when you get out of your comfort zone and leave your home to see how other people live in other parts of the world experience different food languages it just makes you better, makes you more interesting, makes you more employable, all those good things. That's it. If we want to call out some places like oh, good places. Hawaii, well, just to go back to your point of be mm -hmm. careful where you end up going and make sure that you give right. yourself some outs, right? In the, sure, in the poker yeah. game that is life. So Hawaii, for instance, a lot of us developers wish that we can go live in Hawaii and do what we do. There's a very small group of developers over there. Say with Wellington, New Zealand. That was my plan. <laughs> oh. Like one mobile studio there or something like that. But, you know. <laughs> Damn, he's yeah. Not, he's checking gamedevmap.com, just so you know. What, what is this yeah, saying? yeah. I'm in here. It looks like it's grown. Oh, well, I don't know damn. if this is up to date. Yeah, check it Maybe out. Maybe in five years. Hey, <laughs> it'll be fine. It'll be ready. These are great call outs for anybody, veterans and aspiring yeah. people who may be super comfortable in their location right now, right? That it's like, hey, always have options. Keep marketing yourself. Be open to Keep networking. Keep networking. Getting back on your amazing journey through the industry. Sure. Soon I'm going to get to my, my energy to AAA. But after BWIN, I got a gig to work in casino games, which, you know, there's different sides of it. I didn't feel good about the moral side of it. There are some people who really do enjoy the games who are not, you know, taking any sort of damage from it or whatnot. I, I do know it also breaks families, right? But it was a good stepping stone for me to learn a very, some very core skills about programming games. 
Mm-hmm. And I actually learned a lot of stuff about server and clients that I'm using today as well. And about, for example, put your logic, any like crucial transaction logic or whatever, anything that where you could cheat, you need to put it in the server and you don't put the code in the client because the, everything that's in the client is something that a user could potentially hack or change, right? Yeah. If that isn't essential PVP programming, there you go. I don't know what is for sure. There you go. I'm using those today, but... After that one, uh, you know, I want to get into AAA, and it's a good story. I convinced my company to send me to GDC, even though Casino has nothing to do with it. I convinced them to send me to GDC, and this who were you with? The Connect Entertainment in Stockholm. Yes. All right. Uh, so I just started talking to companies there, and I was lucky enough to have a developer pass, so I could network and I can go to the business lounges and stuff and go behind the scenes. What GDC was it? Do you remember? Two thousand twelve. I think yeah. 2012-ish around in, in Cologne. Wait, Gamescom? Yeah, Gamescom, Gamescom. and GDC. They were like, they were together. First it was the GDC week and then it became, turned into kind of Gamescom. But yes. anyway, so I walked up to the Warner booth, you know, Warner Bros. I, I don't even know which games they're making. They're like a new student. No one really knows what they were doing. Well, they had like uh, the Batman Arc or, or Armored Edition that on Wii, a Wii U, the first Wii U that they were showing or something mm-hmm. like that. And I'm like, hey, so someone here who like works at the studio, because usually they just put like PR people yeah, that are recruiters. not even from the studio. They don't really put a lot of devs on the four hours. Um, and they're like, yeah, no, yeah, Kelly works there. You know, okay, cool. Where's Kelly? Oh, she's in the, in the she's on the floor. Uh, oh, like, she's not here. Come back later. And I came back later. Or, and then they're like, and then another guy said, no, Kelly isn't here, but, but she's in the business lounge, but. But I can, you know, I can, I can take it. I can show you that, you know, like, and then we walk in there. I'm okay. And then on the way, he's he's starting to like, wait a minute. Do you have like an appointment with her? Do you know her? I'm like, oh, I'm kind of just interested in like working for her studio. And he's like, oh, do you have like a card or something like that? And I did have a card. Also, students get business cards. Be prepared. So I did have a card and he's like, okay, wait here. And then he took the card into, and he went to, and he walked into the business lounge, like the, the Warner only area. Mm-hmm. And then he came back and, she, and he's like, well, sorry, Kelly doesn't have a, a time to talk to you. She, she can't talk to you right now. She's busy with something. But here is like her business card. And she told me to tell you to just send your resume to her. And I'm like, okay. Cause in my head, that was just like the answer to get kind of rid of me or like rid of someone's what yeah. I thought. Don't you know, call like, us. We'll call you. Yeah, okay, almost like that, right? So I'm like, okay, well, that's not going to happen, you know? Oh, well, a little a little bit discouraged, but, you know, I kept on, you know, meeting other people and, and mm-hmm. having a nice wrestling event. And then lo and behold, lo and behold, they call me. What? One of the recruiters just calls me up. Uh, this is like, I don't know, a month or two afterwards, right? Two months later uh, for all intents. Yeah, and you know what? If I hadn't had that internship in the, in Silicon Valley, I'm not sure they would have called me. I'm just saying. I don't know. No one ever told me. I hope it was helping. You were making games. Yeah, casino games. Yeah, you did have that on your resume. Yeah. And so I was supposed to work on a game called Legoshima, which is kind of cartoonish. And it was using like Unity or something like that, that I had a little bit of a tiny experience in. It was a kind of casual team and cool project. And there was kind of chill and there wasn't a lot of high pressure. Problem is, blessing is that that game is put on hold. And instead I get to work on Batman Arkham Origins. So you got brought over to Warner Brothers to work yeah. on Lego Chima. But after I signed a contract, because in Sweden, you have like three months notice periods, right? And during this time, they canceled the project that I was going to work on. 
But instead of canceling the contract, they shipped me to the other project. And that's a high profile project. No one even knew they were going to do the Bidix Batman. And I, I love Batman Arkham City. I was such a fangirl. When me they called me and told me that it's the other project, I'm like, I didn't even know this project existed. They're like, no, you're going to work in this other. It's like a Batman. I'm like, oh my God. You know, I remember still. You give me Batman Arkham Asylum and Arkham City, and those are my deserted island games. I can be on an island all by myself playing those games till the end of time. There and be you happy. go, right? So that was huge. I even remember, you know, I put on my favorite game music song, Dearly Beloved, and I bought some chocolate and I got some, some wine. I was like lying, crying of happiness on the floor on my back. I remember this. and dancing around in my apartment because I just got into AAA. <laughs> and I've been trying and banging my head against the industry so many years, trying to get an internship and all this stuff, right? Get into casino. And I'm like, dang. If we go back to when you got your internship, this is what, 2007 or 8? 2008 is when I was in the, yeah. 2007 or 8, you get your internship, you get to California. Before that, you're in television, you're in journalism, you are... Esporting. Yeah, you're in esports, you're like seeding DreamHack in the early days, Mm -hmm. and now here you are. After all that, you know the thing you wanted to be doing... I want to be programming. I want to be in games. I want to be in AAA. Yeah. And you get the news to say, hey, you're in and you're going to work on Batman. That's it, right? And this is how you celebrate. You're just like you with all the things that make you happy. And you're crying. <laughs> you know, you got your food. You got your drink. You got your music playing. Yeah, that's it. That's when yeah. Marie, the game developer, was like, foot that's in the door. Break. No turning back now. Nope. No Ooh. turning back now. I mean, then you also got to like stay in the industry and keep you in the industry and you got to make sure you get the credits from that first gig. And then once you ship something and you got your name on Moby Games, your career is secure. That's it. Done. <laughs> Moby Games makes or breaks you. That's it. There you go. There you go. It's all in the writing. You know, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but but I'm not exaggerating too much. Like actually like shipping your first game and getting your name in the credits. Is something that is really highly regarded in the game industry to have actually finished a project and been there kind of when the going gets tough. Because the going used to get really, really tough and it still gets really, really tough. Every single game, no matter many, how many, many times we've done it, it's always a small miracle and it's always a battle from beginning to mm-hmm. end. And it always feels like it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. They're going to close us down. It's going to get cut. <laughs> they're gonna change it they're gonna change it, it from a batman game back to a lego game it's no vacation <laughs> this year <laughs> keep going how was the move stockholm to montreal funny you should ask first you know like sold all my stuff or shipped it i actually paid for shipping myself i got my own visa working holiday visa and shipped everything and then when it was when it was go time i left my new year's party in 2012 to go to the airport, hotel to pick up my cat and my suitcase. And, and then I was on the plane and off I went. And then I landed on the 1st of January in the cold Montreal. Oh, and it was dark, it was snowing, it was colder than I ever felt. And the it's first like thing 20. I did, go to buy another scarf. Because I had one, it was just not enough. Because there was a, like a little bit of a hole in my throat and, and the wind. I'm like, uh-uh, this is not happening. I, I think <laughs> I did the same thing, Marie. Like... My first purchase when I got to Montreal, I think I got there like in March or something. Still cold. <laughs> was a scarf. I was like, yo, hey. I went to, I don't know, Place something. Place it was a Place de Marie. Yeah, Place Zara, I think. I was in there, in the underground mall. Yeah. And I don't know, H&M, I think. 
was like, yeah, all right, scarf. Switched give it up. To me. Yeah, man. No, that was cool. And it was a really big jump for me because in school at the time, since there were no game educations, I very, very brief interaction with Unity as the only game engine that I was touching because game engines were not public at the time. Mm-hmm. And also, like, I didn't learn game game programming. I didn't know game engines. I, I just I, I was a decent programmer, like definitely. But would I never you, done would games you know before, C++? right? And yeah, C. I knew C plus plus. I knew C. I knew my Java. Right? I I can get around. I knew C sharp, but but still doing working within an engine and like I've worked in. I think I've written something in, in Lua. One okay. part I missed out on the story was I I was also in this small student group making a game for Swedish Game Awards. Big competition in the nordic that's called nordic game awards i think but we were using like crazy eddie's gui shoot shout out to Ed, crazy eddie gui's tool but it was you know we were using like a graphic engine called like augur or something like that it was really really basic it was nothing like working in unreal 3 and working on like a triple game or working with unreal script and so like it was definitely like a big learning step for me, <laughs> you could say. So yeah, and then later on, after ship Batman Arkham Origins, can ask myself, you know, do I? What did you I come in be- as? Was it game programmer? Associate. Well, I was. I was more. I had already kind of left junior. I was more or less intermediate in Stockholm, but I took the step down to be associate gameplay programmer for okay. One Redis. So what it. would you say about that? There's a lot of people I know that chase a title. They're sure. like, hey, I want to be senior. I want to be principal. And uh-huh. and if you're not going to give me that title, I don't want the job. What would you say to those people that are all about chasing titles versus mm. opportunity, visibility, right? Like yeah. Batman is a very prominent IP in the industry, mm-hmm. right? What would you give as words of advice on making that decision to be like, hey, I'll take that title because mm. this is what it's going to lead for me. So a title will always be compared to the project that you worked on, you know, to be like, okay, well, you're a senior, but well, you know, you're the CEO, but is this your own company that you started? Can, you know, that kind of debate, right? Yep. So if like being a senior on like a mobile game or a small game or an indie game was at least not then as highly regarded as being a senior AAA, because also there's more people at AAA, there's more people want to get promoted, fewer who can. So it's actually, it can be pretty hard. You're going to put in a lot of years and you're going to move really slow within AAA to get that title. So it is really important to people because it's it's something that kind of sets them to make sure they make progress. And also while game projects can be like between two and a half to, you know, five years, something in between, it's, you know, they don't have anything to show in between there. It's important for people to get that recognition that I am still making progress kind of thing, you know? Yeah. Especially what if the game gets cut and then they never got to cash out on those years of how much better they became, right? I think it's important, really. I think it is important to people. I understand what why it is important as well. But like having to work on, on having to done it on, on a big project, it's like those two times each other you know like those those are equally important i would almost say so you shipped your first triple a game yeah on what like xbox 360 ps3 yep last yeah last of the generation and then it was more or less like well i, I was kind of had to ask myself do i want to can more or less brace myself and do this again for another sign up for the same thing for like a long time or do I want to uh, move to IDOS? Uh, and like at the time, I kind of wanted to work on Tomb Raider. I 
Tomb Raider oh. came pre-installed on my first PC that I got when I was like eight years old or something like that. So I've yeah. always been a huge Tomb Raider fan. It's a cracked version too. It's like the textures were missing at some point. But anyway, so I love this. So I wanted to do that. And then I, I did get a promotion to Intermediate. I don't think I was looking for the promotion per se. I just kind of wanted to work on Tomb Raider. But they didn't have any positions open. So I worked on Deuce X Mac and Divided. And the plan was to move to Tomb Raider. How did you make that transition like? Yeah, my mentor. So in Montreal, there's this thing called Demo Night. And on my first week at Warner Brothers, I get an email about Demo Night, IGD at Demo Night. It's a huge spectacle for the whole game that I've seen in Montreal. So I went there and the first thing that happens is that I meet, meet kind of game dev dad in Montreal, Jason De La Roca, an amazing guy. I didn't know his nickname was Game Dev Dad. I could so see I that just, now. I just made that up, right? But uh, he's <laughs> like, who are you? Are you new here? Oh, welcome. Here's here's Shock. And then he, he showed me, he's like, hey, talk to this guy. And then Shock, can you show her around? Uh, and, and then now Shock Shaw is one of my very best friends and he's been one of my mentors ever since. And he worked at IDOS. So, you know, I made my over. And then I got to, you know, experience and learn the world of this X, which I also got really into as well. But I still wanted to transition to design, right? Okay, you were programming. Yeah, and I was kind of seeing that it was going to take a really long time to do that as well. What about design was it that was so appealing to you, especially as a programmer, mm. right? Like I, I look at engineers sure. on a game team and I think like, man, you guys have the keys to the, to the universe, right? Like you yeah. can build anything make anything happen mm -hmm. and design is different a different beast i enjoyed programming because it was also creative and, and especially back in the days when the designer were more like paper designers mm -hmm. and the programmers were more like actually putting everything together and polishing it you know but nowadays when the also the endies have got it got it got better since then mm -hmm. and now designers do a lot of that stuff themselves but i don't know why i want to be a designer from the beginning I don't know. It's just like a, a, a core power. It's just a core talent that I have, you know, this, my creative side, you know, like I, I don't know. I wanted to be a fashion designer for a while when I was a kid. I thought layout and UI was pretty interesting. Like I wasn't that into kind of making my own board games or D&D like some other people are, but definitely just like the coolest thing was, was definitely to make the game, like decide mm -hmm. uh, how the games work. That was definitely the coolest thing. And can I ask you about that? Sure. We're going to go off on a little side journey uh, here. Here we go. Here we go. Raise yourself. So <laughs> you're in IDOS. You're, sure. you're a programmer on Deuce X. Mankind Divided, the first one. or Yeah, before Human Revolution. Correct. And you're really trying to make the jump over to design. You talked about your creative outlets being one of your core talents. Mm. And when we spoke about core talents in preparation for the show, I never really thought about this. And ever since you and I spoke about it, I've been discussing with a lot more people. I'd love to cool. break that egg yeah. with you. Sure. What's this idea of core talents and how that manifests in a person and, and the different ways they can express themselves or need to express themselves? The best way that I could explain it in gamer terms is intrinsic motivations. The stuff yes. that you do because you just enjoy doing it, not because someone else told you or giving you a reward for doing it. It's something that comes naturally through you and almost becomes an extension of yourself it's almost something you would just do automatically more or less you know give some examples my core talents one of my core talents is i'm pretty organized i write lists are you one of these people you have lists of everything 
I have this of what I'm going to shop. I have a list of cities that I want to visit. I have a list of my karaoke songs. You know, this is, this is like how far I'm doing with my organizational drive and looking with esports when I put all this stuff together with scheduling and stuff with the booth and the rules, you know, like that's something I just really enjoyed doing. Right. Okay. And then it's, uh, another one of my drives is creative and creative was. I don't know, like I told you, I wanted to be a, a fashion designer. I was really interested in how colors intermix with each other. I was in, I was very much into like logical puzzles and, and problem solving as well. Mm-hmm. That's your programmer. Yeah. And then there's the technical trait of it all, which is like my, my mathematical, logical side. There was this many different outlets you can get for that kind of logic and, and analytical and mathematical side. But for me, tech became one of them when I could stimulate myself, stimulate my brain, challenge myself, keep like the matrix in my head and really immerse myself in this kind of virtual universe that's in my head, which is like how the whole thing is constructed. I really enjoy that and writing algorithms and see them grow and seeing them being emergent. You know, there was a lot of cool stuff. I'm going to give another example. Not a lot of people know this. 2010, I coded my own uh, application it, it's a wardrobe app. It helps me to just pick my clothes. So I'm taking my creative inside there and, and my, and then bother with some usability that, that was also like something that was interesting. And I started programming to do it. It's something I decided to do. Yeah. You know, not something I got paid for. It's not something I released on App Store. It was just something that I just enjoyed doing. And that's why I could finish that project. You know, I cared about the clothes. I, I thought it was cool, fun designing the UI. And it was interesting writing like the the code behind it. Does it still work? Do you still maintain sure. it? Like use it for you today? Yeah. Oh, what am I going to wear today? Yeah, of course. What? Awesome. That's that. Yeah, I have to I have to use it because now I'm a director. Got a whole new. I'm buying all these suits and stuff, man. Okay, That's true. okay. I always had suits, but I'm buying a couple of new ones because you know I didn't have a birthday party, so I just went shopping. But anyway, that's a little bit of a tangent. Core talents meaning there's so many things that make you as a person, and they want to come out. They want to be used. They need to come out. And there, you could be in a role that only requires you to use one. So you're always going to be having to look for opportunities that let you express the others. That's it, right? So for me, like my last chord is presentation. I love having it. Like I used to be on stage. I used to be in TV. And it was just the energy with the crowd. It wasn't about me being famous. It was about the energy with the crowd, entertaining them, much like a comedian would feel, right? So for me, like to get into the industry, I knew that, you know, I'll be a manager one day. Like, I think that would fit me really well because I'm organized. I'm a natural leader. I was always leading different projects in school, for example. But to get into the industry, you need to be really good at this one thing. Right? That's what the NGOs do. You need to be really good enough in programming or good enough in art, good enough level design, you know, good enough in product management. And you need to do that really well and then you can get into the industry. But I knew that a role where I thrive is one where I can get outlet for several of these things because otherwise I'm limiting myself. It's like standing on one leg when I have four legs. And even as a programmer, I fulfilled my fascination and then I took it even further and kept, even though I wasn't that interested to that point you know for that many years I'm, I'm interested in tech but you know I'm not interested in like engine code for example that takes it a, a little bit far so I was not thriving and going mm. further in programming was not what I wanted to do so I more or less felt like I have to find a role where I can do more and if you're a designer there's just so much logic in your day every day that I never missed programming once I did my transition 
Never, because there's so much problem solving and logical stuff too, right? So, so that's it. And so design was something where I can do also a little bit of presentation. You present your designs, right? So it's yeah. been a role that builds those drives. And the funny thing with programming was that I was understimulated. There was so much stimulation to be or challenge within programming, things to do. And even though I was doing it and it was taking my brains in some way, I still felt so understimulated and so unfulfilled that I just had to go somewhere where I could get outlet for it. all these other potential that just lived inside me. And I knew that to get somewhere where I can really, really thrive and really do a good job and people really, really appreciate me and come some really good impactful results, I need to go get a job where I can do as many as possible of my core talents, you know? Remember when you were a kid, you know, you could do this or this or this because you had different core talents and different interests, but then you have to kind of pick one thing to study and then you get smaller and smaller, but you are more than your role. And that's also where we're seeing people having all these cool side projects, for example. Yeah. To get outlets for, for the other sides of them, right? And, and ultimately, like imagine you can get a job where you get outlet for all that. I like that. You are more than your role. That's it. You're a complex people, a complex person with different traits and interests and talents. And you know, just because could you pick the one to hone in on and work with doesn't mean you don't have the other, right? I know like there's a girl, one of my acquaintances, she's a programmer and she's an amazing painter for making portraits on her spare time. It's weird to me, right? In these specializations, companies are always looking for this one specific talent one specific problem right like hey we need a network person or we need a graphics person and i think this is what we can learn from indie development where much like where you are in the startup mentality you not only get to but the team benefits from having you do so many different things right like you're helping the team on so many different platforms and it's always strange to me how these big games teams with over 50 100 developers pigeonhole people and they're like hey you're gonna make yeah. levels you're gonna make graphs you're going to do a tower design as opposed to, hey, whatever you're good at, whatever you want to do, let's foster that, right? Like, like mm. Let's make a strike team that lets you build so much of the game, right? Because it's only going to help the end product, I think. Yeah, it would be good to look at people more as individuals than just kind of pieces of, of a puzzle, right? And with an indie studio, you honestly, like if you get there early, you can pick your role and, and you can hire people around you to fill the other stuff, right? And so for me, the more I went into programming, the more I started struggling to keep my motivation and my interest and mm -hmm. that impact my velocity as well because I wasn't as focused because I didn't think it was as fun anymore. That's a danger that happens, right? When you have a talent that you haven't fostered correctly, you haven't given them the opportunity to do the thing that excites them and interests them, lets them flex the different parts of their muscle or core talents, you're going to lose them, right? They're not going to be so, doing their best work because they're not excited anymore. Some people are just happy doing what they're doing, right? And some yeah. people want to keep specializing. And some people like want to just keep growing and keep always getting new challenges, right? And I started to stagnate a little bit. I did get an offer from Funcom that later changed name to Visio to work on Rollercoaster Tycoon World, which was amazing. As a designer? They were like, pick any role you want on the product. If you want the AI, we'll, have, we'll give you the AI. And I'm yeah. like, I love AI. When I worked in Batman Arkham Origins, I made the first boss, Killer Croc, and I fell in love with AI. You know, on the team, it was like, well, it's the smallest boss, and, and people love working bosses, you know, like, you know, and it was simply enough. 
and someone had already laid some groundwork that I could do that one, but it's the one that all the reviewers play because it's 20 minutes into the game. So for me, it was really cool, right? Like, and I, you know, I made that guy. I thought of everything else. <laughs> <laughs> That's my boy. Come on, Killer Krug. Get him up. Yeah. Get him. get him. Go get him. That's it, right? So yeah, so I got an offer to work on, and I, I more or less picked AI both on the design and the programming part. Thing is, the guy who was a creative director at the time, we we made an agreement and I started. After two weeks, he left. Oh. Yeah. He left the studio after uh, between two weeks and a month or something like that. And I, who was supposed to do both the design and and programming, more and more got to be like, well, you did, you wrote all the core pathfinding. Like I was the one making the project file, the .sln, the Visual Studio. This never happens. Yeah. So I was there from the start. I made like the structure. I like the game loop, push us through like the first milestone and a lot of stuff. And then more and more, I've gotten kind of pigeonholed to just do the programming. And they actually hired someone to do the design on AI design. You know, was something that I was, that was my transition, right? You were working together? Yes. Okay. But it was something that I was supposed to be doing. So I felt like more and more having the role of, you know, technical designer doing both wasn't working out at the studio. I, I noticed other studios that it does work out on, but it was new role at the time. And it was hard to understand. And reporting wise, it became really weird. Do you report to programming or do you report to design? And whatever you do, you get, you know, that's what you're going to more and more circle and do that stuff and and john is waving now so i'm wondering if he has some similar experience of his own i was simply drawing the fork i don't know if it, you can tell but yeah it was this is my fork you have the branching path you have this middle road where you do a little bit of both but mm. reporting structures and producers want you to pick a side and then yeah. the side you pick the other one suffers more or less, right? On my next like uh, yearly one-on-one, whatever, you know, they're like, all right, what's your, you know, what's your future plan? You know, I'm like, this is my last job as a programmer. You told I told them. my boss, either you guys give me a transition or someone else will. Mm. More or less. It wasn't as obnoxious as I just presented it. It was definitely different. But I told straight out, this is my last job as a programmer. I, I need, because I, if it wasn't working out, like mm-hmm. it, I wasn't interested, right? It was spiraling to something that where I wasn't really motivated anymore. So I knew I had to do, make the job out of necessity to even stay in the industry, stay motivated, stay productive in the industry. Like I really needed to do this and more to survive because it was, yeah, it was a downward spiral for me. So luckily there was a, a man there called uh, Mark Albinet, big shout out. He used to do the design education internally at Ubisoft. So this guy had more experience as a dev, as a designer than I had years lived. You know, he was, wow. he had like 30 years of experience. So I had like a two hour interview with him to test if I could be a designer and kind of came out of that. And he's like, yeah, you should be a designer. You know, like you're, yeah. Somewhere between junior and intermediate sign, honestly. And so I, so, you know, I, I was, I was probably about to hit senior programmer and st- instead I went to kind of low intermediate designers. It was quite that step. But after that one, everything just went smooth. This was a, just a conversation. You guys are just talking design ideas. Yeah. And- anything. Nice. And I had really strong senses, which I knew I always had strong design senses, right? 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and I always, I like, I played, I played every genre there is uh, when I was a kid, every game that came out, right? It's like my breadth of knowledge and I have a very strong sense of association. When someone says something, I connect dots really, really quickly in my head. And that also helps me as a designer because I'm understanding how things can work together and coming up with ideas that might fit that I'm just pulling out of my pockets from this other thing that happened 20 years ago kind of thing. So they gave me that transition, which I'm super thankful for. And I finished Roller Coaster Tycoon as a designer, fashion designer. That's what you were credited as? Those credits never made it to Moby Games. Moby Games, if you guys don't listen to this, uh, you know, <laughs> there was credits that never got to your sites. Uh, maybe I can dig them up somewhere. I never got credit, but yeah, I know I finished that project as a designer, even though I'd started as a more tech designer, slash programmer. So it's really cool. And then I was a designer on the next product, Rock, uh, kind of small survival simulator on Mars. It was fun to do, but never really got the, the critical mass that we kind of needed to keep working on it uh, after we released it in early access. That's a shame. And then at that point, I'd been in Montreal for, for five years. And also the studio didn't have a whole lot of stuff lined up either. So it was kind of time to move on for several reasons. And that's when I called Capcom, Capcom Vancouver. I interviewed them a few years before when I was also interviewing the roller coaster. But now I call them, I'm like, hey, remember you guys gave me a, this is also a pro tip for, for students or, or whoever's in the industry. I'm like, hey, remember me who you guys gave an offer, offer to as a programmer? I'm a designer now. And only thanks to the fact that they went all the way to the offer stage, this time they're like, oh, we don't need to make a cultural check on you, you know, like you're already vetted and approved. Like, well, yeah, you should talk to the designer. So I only had like two interviews where they were like, so do you want to be a tech designer or a designer? I'm like, designer this time. You know, I learned my lesson. Yeah. And, and so it's, if you go all the way to the offer stage, it will be much easier to pick up that again at some point. Saying if you've gotten an offer from a studio or a team, it's easier to come back to that yeah. team saying, hey, I'm looking now. Do you have a need for what I can bring? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. For More sure. Because you're fully approved. You were given the offer. That's the ultimate sign off on you as a person, right? Mm-hmm. So the only thing you need to know is, okay, so do you know the skills? Or do, would you fit for this exact role kind of thing and meet your manager, your closest coworkers and make sure that they like you? If, yeah. if, if it has changed, if it's the same people, then you might not even need that. It's not out of the ordinary that the team goes through some restructuring, directors change, leads change, things like this. You never know. Mm-hmm. But having, having had an offer there is as good to them as you would have. It's even better to them than, than reading your name in the credits of Moby Games. <laughs> Fair. Totally. <laughs> yeah, no. So I moved to Vancouver. East Coast to West Coast. Yeah, from East Coast to West. It's different, man. It's different. We could we could talk a whole episode about that one. Yeah. Even though it's the same country, uh-huh. it's a very different vibe, very right? Very like different vibe. Little Europe versus like West Coast, BC. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Shout out to West Coast. I loved Vancouver. I didn't even know which game I was going to work on until my first day when it told me I was working on a game in the Dead Rising franchise. Yes. That I cannot name because very, very sadly, the studio was closed down. And you know, by the time I joined, they used to be called Blue Castle Games. The studio had existed for like 20 years. I'm like, this must be safe, surely. Mm. But what I didn't know, and also a tip for you guys when you're interviewing, what I didn't know was that the product already had shifted three times. Mm. And you know, your product can only shift that many times before (laughs) it's going to be canned or canceled or whatever. So like, make sure to say, which life are we on? Because you only have like, it's like a cat, you only have like, you don't have nine lives. You have mm. maybe like 
four lives maximum, right? Maximum. So if it, they were already on three, which I didn't know because I hadn't asked those questions. So I was only there for about six months. That's a good point, right? Like when you're in talks with a team, if you can find out what the project is, that's always helpful. The other one is, hey, how long have you guys been in development or what stage yeah. are you in, right? Are you in pre-production? How long have you been in there? Hey, you're in production. Hey, do you have a ship date? You know, these are great things to get a sense mm -hmm. of how much mm -hmm. runway there is, how safe it is to kind of yeah. pick up and leave and move. Yeah. If they're going to be like, our creative director just left, you can kind of sense that ooh, this might not be the best time to join. I mean, I'm just going it, to, it might work out, but I'm just going to put the exclamation mark out there, you know? Yeah. Interview the interviewer, right? Like it's there not just go. them interviewing you. It's also you interviewing them as a place for you to grow and, and see what else is out there. That's it, right? And also check if they have several projects because if they have several projects going and especially if they're getting funding from different places, then there's a, there's a high chance that studio can, they have more legs to stand on if mm -hmm. one leg falls, so to say. And, and, and also if it's owned by a publisher, then supposedly it should be more safe, but it was not in this case, sadly. I'm with you. I'm like, hey, Capcom, they have a ton of IPs. Mm -hmm. They are stable as can be. They've been in the industry since the beginning, since I was born. Yeah. They're not going anywhere. Right? Boom. Right? And the studio had been there for 20 years, which was rare in games at around that time that studios... Because there you were either bought up or you were waiting for the one game that would flop or you would fold. That's mm. kind of what the climate was back then, right? This is only like five years ago or something. But anyway, they, you know, mass layoffs later and I find myself to, oh, what do I do now with my life and my career and my job? I, I knew I wanted to continue within design and I didn't know which city, I didn't know which studio or mobile or I still wanted to work with PC and console at the time. And I got the best offer I could get. I got five offers in the end. Damn. You know, every time after every new product, every new position, I'm getting one more job first i could i got zero job offers yeah and you get the one job offer next time you look you got two job offers next time you three i'm at five <laughs> damn that's good that's, solid. that's a then, good amount but also to i from. speak to seven I, i've mastered this so i speak to like seven students at any given time if i'm unemployed or you know looking sure. for a job because yeah that's a full-time job too full-time job studios. Cool. but i so i went to the uk to work for jagex which is some people that i met at the g the same gdc conference party <laughs> Years back. That's how I knew them. And that's and one of them I, I happened to add into LinkedIn and he saw I was looking for a job. So he's like, he just hit me up and hey, started working there. So you got to do your networking, you know, you got to network good impressions. I love LinkedIn. I think the majority of the work that I've gotten comes on the strength of LinkedIn. So keep your LinkedIn up to date. Keep your network up to date. Yeah. So I worked there for two years and learned a bunch about design from a lot of great people there. And I was both kind of senior designer and I got a, I was also product owner. So I was driving my team and I was oh. designing all the stuff. So it's not that different from what I do today, but now I do it on a, like on a higher level, you could say. And then I got an, an offer that was actually giving me a lead position that was in Berlin for a studio called Jaeger. And they were doing an eSport game, kind of an eSport. It's called The Cycle. It's a, it, the game is live. And it was like a Battle Royale-ish game, but team-based. Battle Royale. I was working on. 
And really, I became the lead designer. So I was doing everything from my eighth, uh, hiring for my ninth designer across the board, you know, involved in the, all the design processes and meetings and things that we were doing, involved in the backlog and which, what we were doing next. Mm-hmm. And then also like a little bit of hands on. And it was a busy time, I can tell you. It was a good time. Sadly, that game chose to move away from esports, whereas an esports was something that I still wanted to work in. Um, it was one of my big interests. So we, we decided to go separate ways as well after that big shift happened. Yeah, once they made a pivot and they moved away from that early esports vision. Yeah, I wasn't the right person then anymore. I was spending a lot of time with the community on my spare time. You know, I was making logos for them. I was helping them cast tournaments. I was at yeah. round tables, you know, and everyone it was a big esport focus. And I was talking to other orgs and helping them to have to host tournaments. And I was designing things for the backlog that we could have like a spectator mode and all kinds of stuff, right? And all that stuff that I really loved to put all my spare time in after work, that got pulled away. Man, yeah, so just taken away. They needed someone who was really motivated about where they wanted to take the game and to kind of jump in and take that in that direction. There's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. You were the lead designer. You were on board with one vision. Mm-hmm. When they changed that vision from something that you were 100% aligned with to something you weren't aligned with, there's nothing wrong with that. But hey, yeah. there's someone else better suited for this and it's not me. That's it. Sometimes that's just the conclusion. And if they had more projects, then it's very possibly that, you know, like an internal move could have been a question. I know I was talking to a couple of people about that being opportunity inside the studio, but here they didn't have a, a whole lot of products, right? So I, mm-hmm. so I moved on and I took a, and this was also maybe a little bit unexpected. I mean, I didn't move to Berlin just to work here for a couple of months, right? But then I took a contract with Ubisoft Stockholm to work and help them when they're starting up well they have been they're still kind of starting up an unannounced game there for a while to help them out so that was like a temporary six months limited contract to help them out and it really bought me a lot of time to figure out what my next step should be this was your Uh, first director role associate director yeah yeah i was associate director which is pretty cool heck yeah but not a full director but it was really cool and i was in charge of all combat and all three c's and all ai because oh. you know i've worked on a lot of ai for roller coaster coon as capcom i was a designer for boss fights that was mm-hmm. like my title you know from from killer croc to roller coaster coon now i'm the designer for all the boss fights yes you know and on the gameplay you know doing the core combat on on batman as well a little bit on deuce x is the role that i could really field having all these both implementation and design experience i was really playing on all my strengths and i was really thriving a lot at ubisoft in terms of like being very productive and set help setting the vision getting him together focus on priorities and set the next step so i you know hopefully i helped them which i think i did i hope i did <laughs> i got to know a lot of cool people as well they're doing some really cool stuff so keep an eye out for them okay in the future but first time i was interviewing with them before i took the contract i was interviewing with the mobile student i'm right now so I actually wanted to work for Meta at the time too, but they didn't have the funding yet to really launch my project. So, you know, when I met with them about around November or so, kind of just after they said, you know, we really want you for our next project, but can you take a contract or something? Meanwhile, because we're not ready to start it, we need to do another funding round and stuff. And, and that's what we did. Okay. So, I, so you know, I had my contract with Ubisoft. 
and then now I, I I'm 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 at Meta and I have you know my own game. It's a mobile game. It's within esports and it's really cool. This has all those aspects that you've been looking for out of yeah. one role. So I'm doing a new game, right? But the game that they have right now is called Rivals. Rivals is where you're a MOBA coach. You know, you're a coach yeah. for a MOBA team. That's kind of what you do. It's like, instead of FIFA or championship manager, it's an esports team that you're managing, right? Mm-hmm. I have been an esports coach. I have been a MOBA coach. You've lived it. Because I've kept doing esports on the side, even though I was working in the game industry. Like I was an admin for StarCraft in Smite. I started a community. I started hosting community tournaments in my local esport meltdown bar. Shout out to my old DreamHack days, right? Yes. I started, I became a caster and I became an analyst. And then three teams asked me to coach them. I've been an actual worker. I know what it's like to be an esport coach. I know what it's like, you know? So it was just a dream, dream role for me. I'm working with esports. I've done the stuff that we're trying to model more or less, right? And I have all this design experience. I could even bring out my old like mobile experience from like the server and the client stuff that I spoke about before. And, you know, I get to do both organizing planning. I get to do design, create a vision and like hiring, putting people together and being like the leader and build a culture. I get to present stuff, obviously, to to top management and like I'm solving problems. Like I'm talking a lot about the architecture in the background mm-hmm. right now as well. Like I'm really thriving, playing on all my strings and doing the thing I love. Uh, and life's good. And I'm, and I'm a fucking director. And you're a fucking director, Woody. <laughs> it comes through so powerfully through the screen as I'm looking at you, right? Like it's, <laughs> I don't know, damn near midnight over there in Berlin. And your energy is infectious, right? Like, (laughs) and this is what happens when you give someone an outlet for, again, I didn't know about this till we talked about it, but your core talents. And when you give someone a place where they can use all their energy and muscles in every vector of a core talent, it's just. Boom. Sky is your limit. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Sky is the limit. I feel like there's so much more we can talk about. (laughs) <laughs> we just kind of covered your the journey. first point. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We just covered kind of the first point. There's so much we could talk more about. Yeah, man, we, we might have to do a follow-up at some point. I would love to bring you back on down the line when you got more of your team built out. And I could talk about what I'm doing. When you, you can know? talk about what you're doing. With that, I would just wrap up with what I like to call the lightning round. Ring it on. Hold my beer. I should hold my horn. You guys don't see it, but I'm, I actually have a drinking horn. That's how I do it. All right. I'm ready. I'm ready. Let's ready? go. What is the last game that you finished? Shit. Faye. What do you think about it? I loved it. It's so artsy, nice mm-hmm. kind of spirit and emotion that there is going through and really nice message about like, you know, like adults don't care about kids or, you know, like the kids can always play with each other no matter uh, where they're from or the species, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It, it takes two comes to mind i like to promote that one when people have a chance to yeah, okay. have a friend to play with it's or too, significant yeah. other you got to check it out got to check it out what is your two. favorite game and when i say favorite game i call it the deserted island game like if you were oh. all by yourself one game to play mm. what would it be hmm i mean usually when the i'd say so i i, I I have two answers. One is that usually when people ask my favorite game, I ask which genre because it's okay. like comparing like 
raspberries to pears to avocado. I mean, Fruits, I, I love all these things, right? Mm -hmm, so, but sweet. but I do have like rankings in each genre. Like I said, I play every genre almost, except for golf games. I don't like golf games. Uh, and I once <laughs> traded my flight simulator, which I thought was boring or too complicated, to to Leisha Suit Larry. <gasps> I have no regrets. It's fine. But anyway, the game that I would play would definitely be an MMORPG when I can be as much as in real life as possible. I've actually, I know this really quick, but I, you know, and I'm going to leave this as a cliffhanger maybe for another episode. I have taken down and broken an uh, MMORPG server. At least killed it. Not, not taken down, but like I killed it. Everyone abandoned it. Oh my gosh. We, we could talk about it some other time, you know, it's a yeah. good question. Sorry, I can't tell you. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> well, talk about it. I like it. I like it. That's like a go. seed for part two. Be on the lookout. All right. What about action game? Curious. It's like your favorite mm. action or stealth game. Ninja Gaiden is one of my absolute favorite games because when you look at Soul Calibur versus Tekken, you know, Tekken is slow, well, slower than Soul Calibur. Soul Calibur is more like Chop, 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 mm -hmm. chop. And the same way I don't enjoy the Demon Souls games because they're slower and more deliberate. I like when there's a lot of action going on and Ninja Gaiden can can really provide that, you know, you're jumping here, there, everywhere, and you're just yeah. kind of out managing a lot with your positioning forth and back. Mm. So that's I feel like one of my, but just in the kind of core, core gameplay and the immersiveness and how responsive it is, I really like Ninja Gaiden games. There needs to be a new one feels like that that yeah. franchises do what is the last book you read or listened to oh shit finished <laughs> i read a lot of books but i rarely finished them i'm gonna give a shout out to a book called why nice girls don't get the corner office check that one out why nice women don't get the corner office what's the takeaway like just a mm -hmm. soundbite or anything that It'll be like, you need to focus more on results. Or it can be like, don't be too emotional in front of your boss. Or make sure to make you get credit for the stuff that you do. Stuff yes. Like it's good. It could be good for anyone, really. Um, yeah. Yeah, totally. That's especially there's a lot of classical women mistakes in there. All right. Good call out. What's the thing you enjoy the most about the job? Two part. One is the gamers, right? That mm. you're ending up starting with the game. But more and more the team and the people there that report to me and that I can have some real impact on their future and their productivity and their motivation uh, and make them strive and fit in and also do some good work. Like that's, that's also really important. To helping me. people grow. Hell yeah. Yeah. Helping people grow. Fantastic. I try to do that. I try to, I try to open doors. I try to, cause now there are so many people opening doors for me, whether mm. this IBM woman who got me this internship or the internship even accepting me. You yeah. know, and this Kelly from, from, from W handed my, my business card to the HR. Like there's, those are the two main women that have opened doors for me in my career. So I try and see if I can connect people and help uh, others open doors. So, you know, if you want a door open or if I can help you get advice you in any way, uh, don't hesitate to reach out. Hell yeah. That's a sign of a great leader, right? Like looking to help people grow. That's what you want out of your leader or your manager or whatever. Yeah. What's your favorite part about working from home? I think I've, my favorite part is that I'm saving so much time because usually when you know, need to go to the doctor, you go to the pharmacy, hand in your bike for repairs, yeah. or you know, someone's constructed, there's a delivery coming or someone's going to come and like look at your sink for, you know, an hour or whatever. If you were at work, you'd have to leave work, go all the way home, do that, and then go all the way back. And you're losing so much time. 
saving time is, 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 is the biggest one and becomes more effective. But also I can focus better at home because I don't have any distractions at home. I hear that our most precious commodity is time and we get to save a bunch of it from working. Like when you're in the office, especially in a high profile role, like a director who always has people needing answers or at a crossroads or, hey, jump in this meeting or, hey, can I come over and we could talk about something, right? So when you're at home, you're a little bit more protected from that kind of like ad hoc meeting. Mm. People need to go and deliberately plan a one-on-one. They need to book your calendar. They need to set up a Zoom meeting. Yeah. yeah, I mean, that becomes the other part of it, which is for me, I work every other day. So they can usually just wait until the next day, right? And, and then if they need to really do something face-to-face. And with that, I'm able to keep the, the home days are almost purely no meeting days. Awesome. We'll see how long I can hold that. Yeah. But that's my ambition. And it's, it's working out for me really well so far. That is an aspirational schedule. I like that. There's yeah. a lot of people that kind of are driven behind this mythical four-day work week or four-hour work week and mm. whatever that means to whoever. Find whatever makes you thrive, you know? Look for when you have energy, when you have focus, when mm. you're high or when you're low and try to schedule and plan your life around that one. And for me, like, I'm really energetic in the morning, right? If I sleep enough, the first thing I do is just to pull up laptop and get out everything that's in my head and be really productive. And then some, so I work for an hour and then I go to the office sometimes. Mm. Um, just like figure out figure out what works for you you know get to know your own body focus mind and also of course your schedule and, and things that impact that one around you i love that flexibility right like especially this model where we can be a little bit more autonomous or own more of our schedules to find like hey let me start early or let me start later to your point yeah. right like when are you more on yeah. when are you more high Right. I get what you mean now. I was kind of struggling to be okay when you say attention, the currency of attention. What do you mean? But yeah. that that helps drive it home is to say if your attention is divided, yeah, it just takes you longer that's to it. do something, and and that's okay. I can relate to that. I definitely like to have some type of documentary or educational podcast or how to in the background whenever I'm writing or designing. And it's just, it's just something that helps, right? Like splitting my focus helps me from, oh, let me go look at my phone or let me go look at social media yeah. or something like that, right? Mm-hmm. A Get pro tip too, having some sort of noise or background music has really helped me as uh, focus. I know, I think it's not only people who are neurodivergent. I think every people, I was thinking for a while, am I neurodivergent because I can be really active and I have so much energy I need to do something with my with my hands. Otherwise, I can. It's really hard for me to focus because I just need to get it out. Right. Mm-hmm. I don't know if everyone is like that, or if I'm like a little bit neurodivergent, like slightly putting on some background noise or mm-hmm. music to drown out the rest of my subconscious that will keep finding something else that it tells me to focus on. You just keep my subconscious busy because there's so many. We don't know it, but our subconscious has getting all these impressions from everything and it has all these calculations going on in the back of our head. When it finds something that it deems worthy of our attention, it will tell us. Mm-hmm. And that's what can distract us because you come up with this or this. And if you feel like you're uh-huh. hungry 
and you heard something and you're like, isn't it smelling over here? You know, yes. like, or it'd be like, oh, wait, something's happening on the TV. Everything's moving quicker now, even though you, it's just kind of, you're just seeing the light of it all. Like, so that's what happens. What I do is to put on some music or something that, or noise that keeps the, keeps my subconscious busy. Mm-hmm. And it really helps me immensely to focus sometimes. That resonates with me pretty loudly. I'm the type of person that I can't be in a silent room. I need mm. sounds, music, something. It allows me to do better work. I, I'm not familiar with the term neurodivergent. Oh, can you read a crash down? Oh, yeah, please do. You know that there's a couple of diagnoses. Some, some people have ADD, ADHD, and an autistic brain. And people have kind of realized that, hey, it's not like a binary thing or this bipolar too. Uh, this or this it's just like it's a big spectrum and you can be slightly here or not there at all on this but you don't have that and usually it's a sliding scale and everyone has their own kind of setup and uh, they might be closer to what is considered normal which normal means like we call it neurotypical neurotypical is what we call normal right Yes. And then you can be anywhere on the spectrum or sliding into it at different points. You might not be all the way to like ADHD or you might be something else. They didn't even come up with yet or realize yet or invent or, you know, put a diagnosis or word to yet. Like people are starting to just realize that, hey, people's brains just work differently. And there's a couple of different patterns that people are oh wait there's a lot of people like this oh is that a diagnosis oh there's a lot of people like that like people are more learning more and more about brains and how brains work and it's no longer like a thing like you're binary this or or, or normal it's more like it's a sliding scale of neurotypical which is most people versus all these other directions that you could be going a little bit or a lot so neurodivergent means that you're not all your eggs are in the typical neurotypical baskets that means you're neurodivergent you're diverging a little bit from the typical in some aspects but there's so many different aspects it could be the scale or the spectrum of this chart just one of the ones that came up right like yeah cover a crazy spectrum right like this autism dyslexia Tourette's Epilepsy is a thing in there. This they're still figuring out what to put yeah. there. It's a lot of research happening right now, and people are starting to wake up to the fact that it's not like you're mentally you're insane or mm-hmm. you're normal. You know, like that's not how how brains actually work. So people are trying to understand it more. And what what they figured out today, I don't think that's the final version of it either. This is awesome. Thanks for sharing. Yeah, this there's a mm-hmm. lot here, and it seems to all fall under that mental health spectrum Mm -hmm. right like of which we talk a lot about on the show is how to balance that out right in this Mm -hmm. life where we're in a pandemic we're socially starved we have a lot of demands on our day-to-day right and and this is an outlet this is an outlet for me it's an outlet for listeners to hear other people's stories and experiences so that they don't feel so alone some of the best developers that i know are highly neurodivergent but they also found ways to make them thrive. They adapted the rest of their lifestyle to get them to a point where they can be really productive at work and reach really far. I agree with that. Some of the people that are in these leadership roles or highly respected creatives to a layman, to an outsider, can be classified as, oh, that guy is weird. That woman or person is eclectic, right? Just all these terms because it's not something that they're familiar with or easily connect with. To your point, some of the best talent in this industry falls in this spectrum and and it makes them highly effective right like they can reach further than what mm -hmm. people have reached before they can show show the way you know pave a new carve a new path in in somewhere what's something most people don't know about you or would be surprised to know 
Not sure if people will be surprised, but I, I have a love for dinosaurs and it was not something that came when I was a kid. <laughs> I mean, I watched Jurassic Park, but it actually was my, my younger brother who kept like, come and play this game with me. What is it? It's like, Ark, it's a dinosaur game. I'm like, oh my God. You know, my, 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 young, my young kid brother wants to play a dinosaur game. All right. Yeah. Eventually, after like one year, I'm like, okay, I'll play your dinosaur game. Yeah. I got really hardcore into that game. <laughs> I now can tell the difference if it, the noise is coming from an approaching pterodactyl or a raptor or a T-Rex. Damn. Okay, so you surprised yourself with that interest. <laughs> yeah, I did. And now, hey. I have, now there's so many dinosaurs in my house, I even lost count. Figurines everywhere, posters, books, a lot of dinosaurs. Shout out to your little brother, helping you discover things about yourself you didn't even know. Yeah, and I said, when I make a game, so there was a little bit of a controversy many years back when one of the representatives for Activision PR, she reached out to 4chan and she asked, hey, mm. why I saw a, a lot of outpouring of negative criticism, especially from this community about the latest release of Call of Duty. Why is it, what is that you guys don't like about it? You know, like, blah, blah, you know, but, and everyone kind of liked Battlefield instead and they didn't like Call of Duty for other reasons. And so everyone unfortunately started trolling her and they'd be like, because there were no dinosaurs. Like, throw in a T-Rex and I'll play and like, and then they'd be like, Mario has dinosaurs. Like, look at Jurassic Park, highly successful game. Everyone just keeps trolling, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then the next Battlefield game, they, it's actually the opening, opening scene, I think for, for Battlefield 3 or 4, is a teddy dinosaur. So next battlefield, they made like, you know, the opening cards like, we have dinosaurs in no, the game. You guys don't call dude, you know? So it just became a meme. So, you know, my, my goal now is to get a dinosaur into one of my games. I think that's doable. doable. <laughs> Give me enough time. I'll figure yeah. it out. Yeah, there you go. You I'm the director started. now, right? I get to do these calls. No, that's what, that's why, that's what that's, it's for. <laughs> that's what's in your job. That's your job to make, <laughs> to make these guesses as to like these what's going to resonate. Yeah, <laughs> someone should stop me though. But yeah, if you can talk to young Marie mm. and tell her something that you know today that you wish you knew back sure. then, what would that be? Keep always talking to mentors. You know, like I had a couple of mentors early on in my career, and then I lost a couple of them around the road. And there was a lot of things and a lot of new things to navigate within games, game development, within career, within companies, within moving different countries. It could have been done much easier if I had only found the right people who had been through that specific thing. Because you need to keep shifting, adding more mentors in, in life to people who, who have done the path that you want to walk next in front of you, right? So like, yeah, getting getting mentors and always help that. It will definitely like soften a couple of the blows. And maybe I could have seen the signs even before, you know, maybe I wouldn't have gone to Capcom, for example. I mean, I don't, I have no regrets about that, but mentors can definitely like help you take the best decisions for your career hell yeah talk to people that have been there that can give you a little bit of insight before mm. you make that decision or come across that road yeah and to know what you're up against definitely. yeah that's a big reason for the podcast right like not to say i'm a mentor or that i'm signing you up to be a mentor but you're being candid about your journey and your experiences that I think will resonate with at least one person out there, right? I think odds are it'll be <laughs> one person makes it all worth it. Where can people learn more about the team or if you're hiring or connect with you? So you can connect with me on my uh, Twitter and at Mayjewal. That's M-E-J-E-R-W-A-L-L or Mayjewal.com or you can add me on LinkedIn. Well, 
write me a LinkedIn first, <laughs> write a message so that I know what it's about, and then I'll get back to you. And then and we're called MetaGames, so it's metagames.gg, M-E-T-A, games.gg. There you can read about the studio and our story and our esport culture and our commitment to the esport fans to make games for them and living esports passion. As I said, I'm even going to paint our new office because I want it to look like a gaming lounge. <laughs> The real dedication here. So yeah. Sweet. I put all those links in the show notes. And finally, if you've had a blast falling out of play area, of which I hope you will do again in the future, is there anyone you would nominate that you would like to fall oh, out of play area? Brie Code. Oh my gosh. I had breakfast with her so long ago in Montreal in a place yeah. called La Trette, right across the street from Idos Montreal. Yeah. And I think it's now closed. I would love to extend an invitation to her. I have not spoken yeah. to her since that time. She was one of my early mentors. When I when I knew that I was going to come to Montreal and going to work on Batman, on Twitter, it was when there was a wave called Reason to Be. One was like, why women still want to be in the game industry. Yeah. And then the hashtag started. There was one reason mentor, which is women in the industry mentoring others. And I just found her tweet in the flow. And then wow. I messaged her and then she mentored me. Do that hashtag. Yeah, to the hashtag. My goodness. So the Sometimes power of hashtags. The smallest things will set the plot the course of your life. She taught me many great things. That's fantastic. Through the power of a hashtag. I love that nomination. I will ask that you put me in contact with her. <laughs> I'll I'll reach out from my end. Definitely happy to extend an invitation. Be honored if she comes through this. What a great follow-up. Thank you so much for that. Thank you so much, John. I had a great time today. Great questions, you know, great reflections on your side as well. It's super interesting. Merci, gracias. Thank you. Are there any closing words for the listeners out there? Keep making good games and keep having a good relationship with your manager and keep being proactive about your life, your career and, and where you want to go. You know, don't let life happen to you. Let you happen to life. Be proactive, take control. Your career is your responsibility. No one else is going to manage that, right? Mari, thank you so much. Till next time. Next time. I'll admit I do not know a lot of people quite like Marie out there. Massive, massive props and kudos to the homie Stefan for making the introduction and pushing me to invite her onto the show. I am so appreciative for that. She is an inspiration to hear how someone is able to have an outlet for all of her core competencies and how she's found this great space between esports and game development to foster all of that. Her journey is what I wish for us all to let it take you around the world across all the different countries and cultures from Europe to Montreal and Quebec to Vancouver to Silicon Valley and back to Central Europe. She's proof that you can make your role come to life. That lets you work on products that joins all the worlds that you're passionate about. She was vital in putting me onto the path to learn more about neurodivergence. And in fact, figuring out that more and more of us developers dance along that spectrum, which I could argue leads to some of our superpowers that makes us better developers. My education has only just begun and trust that I'll keep having this discussion with others and never stop learning. 
On episode 27, debuting in a couple of weeks, we sit down with James Kane, a game designer and QA manager over at Raccoon Logic based out of Montreal. He's worked alongside me in QA when I was in WB Games Montreal and was a key part of the team on Typhoon Studios working on Journey to the Savage Planet when they got bought out by Google Stadia. We go in on his journey doing all the roles in QA and making the jump into game design and more. Make sure to follow us so that you don't miss out on that episode. Thank you for listening, devs. If you found this episode informative, I ask that you pay a link forward to a developer to help grow our listener community. If you're a game developer with a story you think could help a fellow dev out, please go to outofplayarea.com and click on the Calendly link at the top to meet up. Please make sure you get approval from your manager or studio's PR or HR team beforehand. Out of Play Area, the Game Developers Podcast releases new episodes every other Monday on all the major players, including Spotify, Apple, and Google. Please make sure to follow us to see what developer falls out of the play area next time. I'm your host, John Diaz. Until next time, devs, stay strong, stay true, stay dangerous. Mega Ran, bring them home. Flight attendants, prepare for takeoff. Captain crew, please take your seats. We are now about to enter the out-of-play area. Yeah. If you can't reach me, I apologize. Since we out of play, I never compromise. John D, NYC, know we got the vibe. Make sure you hit that follow when you hit subscribe. Out-of-play area podcast. Out-of-play, out-of-play area podcast. We got Something for the game devs Stay strong, stay true, and stay dangerous Had to switch the styles for a challenge Best thing out of Harlem since Young Miles Morales A new podcast comes to provide the balance With game dev veterans and rising talents Out of play Welcome to the Out of Play Area Podcast A show by game devs for game devs With no ads, no BS, just the real Welcome to the Out of Play Area Let's go.